0: Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Caribou, who is both a partner at Semperviren's Venture Capital um, and, and known to me and, and probably many others as well as a chairman and co-founder of InsureTech Connect, which... If it isn't the biggest insuretech uh, conference, uh, it's is, is known to be the
1: most raucous. I uh, <laughs>
0: don't know if that's the tagline you want, but... And,
1: and um, it is the biggest, Alex, by, by a good margin. So I got to throw that in there for you. But yeah, I appreciate yeah, the, mo- yeah.
0: the, the most raucous. That, that's really good, too. <laughs> I was pretty confident it was. But um, yeah, I not want to get upset at any other, other events out there. But um, look, before before we dive in, um, love. Always better to throw it over to my guests than if you'd be so kind enough to to introduce yourself and and, and what it is you do. although. Fa- fairly, fairly, probably as it as it says on the tin, I would imagine. But but uh, always better to get your take on it. Well,
1: uh, thanks for having me here, Alex. Really appreciate the, the time uh, to talk with you. Uh, so, for my part, I, I do get to wear a few different hats uh, professionally. So, partner at Semper Verens Venture Capital, uh, boutique venture capital firm, very focused actually on. Um, really any any uh, startup that is selling to or through the employer, has some connectivity into the employer channel, some relationship mm-hmm. there, and talk more about why we think we deserve to exist and all that. Uh, I'm also, as you say, uh, chairman, co-founder of InsureTech Connect, uh, the most raucous InsureTech conference uh, in the world, <laughs> and uh, actually um, also uh, helped co-found a few other industry tech conferences, one in the real estate tech uh, arena, one in the uh, sort of HR tech future work arena. So I've got this weird habit of helping to uh, to launch those kinds of conferences. Uh, and then uh, you know I try to do a little bit of writing and speaking and podcasts and basically make a nuisance of myself wherever possible. So that, that's really <laughs> my job. <laughs> Sounds on me. Um, uh,
0: I've got so many people that I think, that I think I just do podcasts and, and, and events and, and I'm like, no, no, the day, the day job is definitely recruitment. That, that's, that's what pays the bills, but, um, uh, but good to make some noise, put some energy out there as, uh, as, as you said, just before we hit record. So uh, I think that's important. Um, uh, talk to me about before, before we dive in um, your involvement in the, in the insurance and tech industry goes back uh, to its kind of more nascent stages and, um, um, how did you get involved in it? Um, what drew you into it? Because you because you didn't come from a traditional insurance background. It was, it was more banking, wasn't it? And then and then, then moved into. Uh, yeah, that,
1: that's exactly right. I mean, I, I'm sort of an accidental insure tech guy. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I cut my teeth at my really my first and only real job uh, was a decade of Capital One. Uh, really back in its heyday, right? So ninety six to two thousand six, it was going through hyper growth. I was like employee number twelve hundred when I started employee number 20,000, you know, Mm. left kind of thing. Mm. Um, And, you know, but really an amazing place to learn how to use data in a business strategy, Mm -hmm. which obviously applies to every risk business. Uh, So decade there, then uh, actually co-founded a boutique venture capital firm uh, prior to my getting involved with Sempervirens, a a fund called QED Investors. Myself and a couple other uh, former Cap 1 execs came together to, to create that. Um, And again, it's sort of we saw the applicability of the power of data and really sort of using the data in the business strategy in the right way um, to be impactful for a whole another generation of startups, Um, Mm -hmm. not just in banking and fintech. We did some ad tech. uh, We did a little HR tech, actually. Uh, We also did a couple insure tech deals uh, before insure tech was a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So like I said, we started doing fintech before it was a thing, and then we started to do insure tech before it was a thing. Uh, so we' like to be you know on the, the leading edge there. Uh, but uh, people knew of us in terms of getting involved on the the startups that had data as a core part of their strategy. So mm-hmm. we would start to see these insurance related deals, particularly around sort of with a data component. Um, and even though we didn't necessarily know the industry that well, we did have some sense of some some thesis around the, the power of the data there. Now I like to say the um, the doing banking, right, does not mean that you know a darn thing about insurance, right? You, you do yeah. not have the answers, and I would never pretend to have the answers in insurance based on, you know, 10 or 15 years in the, the banking world, no matter how, you know, even if in, in an innovative corner of the banking world. Mm-hmm. But it does mean you, you largely know the right questions to ask. Right? So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the questions in banking, and if you want to be, you know, doing something interesting as a startup in banking. Are largely the same questions as an insurance. Mm-hmm. Often different answers, mm-hmm. but you know, usually the, the key thing is knowing what questions to ask, not having the answers ready made. So mm-hmm. we we knew a few of the right questions to ask when we would see some insure tech startups. You know, we actually um, I led a, an investment in a telematics company back in 2011 which is actually a long time ago now. Yeah, uh, yeah. And we, we actually had an exit in the telematics company. In the telematics space, we had an exit in 2015. Like, wow. that's like ancient history. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it had real revenue and stuff like that. It was amazing. Uh, How old-fashioned. It was, really- <laughs> it was great. Uh, we, we were in a workers' comp-related uh, company mm-hmm. um, as well. And so we, we started to, you know, I'd say dabble, right? Learn. Mm-hmm. A bit uh, about the industry specifics by doing that, and then you know, 2015, 2016, I, I say it kind of smelled like something interesting was about to happen in the insure tech category, mm-hmm. uh, and so I said, look, I'll I'll focus on insure tech for a while here, see if there's something really meaningful to do, and and that's what actually led to insure Tech connect is like, well, I should go to an industry conference. Oh, I can't find one. Oh, well, I need mm-hmm. one. Well, maybe mm-hmm. I should create it. Got connected with a guy who knew actually what he was doing, um, but that that you know ended up being the the genesis of it. Um, mm. So yeah, it's sort of accidental into the insurance, and it's but it's such an important industry, right? Yeah. And so much opportunity that I, I kind of fell in love with you know getting deep into the tech space. Mm. What were the sort of winds of change? I mean, you, you sort of said it smelled like something was
0: going to happen. Um, I think I, I see. So see, I kind of felt that as well because i obviously worked in the insurance industry for such a long time and 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 now our business is purely insure tech um uh, but but i was a bit late to the party from that point of view um uh because because i suppose from a recruitment business you have to come a bit later because you have to get that scale from an investment situation where you want to be in earlier because you want to sort of get that get that value what were the what were the what were the things that led you to think that was it was it data driven was it you know, just sort of relationship-led
1: and your network. I'm intrigued to see sort of like what's the tipping point for yeah, you to Yeah, so, kind of so again, in. sort of dial the clock back about six, seven years right? mm. and, and asking at that time, why now, right, is really mm. what you're doing. And, and I'd say there were a couple of factors going on all at once. One, uh, you know, the insurance industry uh, was kind of a laggard to adopt and embrace a bunch of technologies, like base level technologies that were reaching some mm-hmm. stage of maturity. Uh, you know, even the, the banking world, you know, got meaningful change from the internet. Uh, even the internet was not really a big enough deal to like change the insurance industry that much, which is an amazing thing to say. Like the internet's a pretty big deal. Uh, but you start to layer on the internet, the maturity of the cloud infrastructure the penetration of the smartphones, right, the maturity of satellite data, right, even. uh, Uh uh, Uh Machine learning was just beginning to actually become like really functional for image and language processing. You had these pent-up technologies that um, there was so much water behind the dam, right, that even the insurance industry could not sort of hold it back. There was just too much value in starting to deploy these base layers of maturing technology uh, into the industry, that either it made total sense for some B2B startups to launch that would help the incumbents to take advantage of those technologies, or for some Uh B2C type companies to emerge to leverage those technologies from scratch to, to compete against the incumbents. But either way, there's just clearly so much value in that technology. That's sort of core part one. Then the other thing is, um, is sort of you had this influx of both quality entrepreneurs and kind of the, the, uh, the VC community, right? Many of whom, like us at QED, had had some really nice success in the FinTech arena, looking for, well, where else do we expand into? What other sectors are interesting? Um, and, you know, InsureTech, Again, the answers may not be the same, but the questions are often quite similar between what's going to drive success in fintech and what's going to drive success in insure tech. So you had a, a nice influx of very high quality, uh-huh. year one, often you know, fintech driven VCs um, looking at the sector at the same time. So you, you sort of need all those things. You need the, the deep economic rationale. You need the quality of entrepreneurs coming in. And you know for most industries, you need at least some venture capital coming in Uh, to to Mm -hmm. fund the initial development and growth. And all those things were coming together Mm -hmm. in 2015,
0: 2016. Sure, sure. Interesting. I'm intrigued about this kind of idea of of about, I can't go to an event, so I start start an event business. Um, I suppose part of that kind of leans into, um, I was surprised you didn't jump up and get, Build, build, build a bigger chill tech. Uh, I suppose you didn't go with that first, or, or venture first. You were like looking for investments in the space. Um, did you, did you look at running with your own gig? Were there propositions that came to you, and you want to get more involved? Did you purely want to take an investor's view of it? Uh, because there's something about that mentality of I, I can't go to an event. I'm going to launch a massive event because it's a pretty big event. It's not like oh. I might invite a few people for dinner. <laughs> it's like <laughs> let's put it on in Vegas. I think it's gonna be eight thousand people this year, or something crazy. So, uh, and I'm, I'm sure it didn't start that way, but uh, there's there's an intriguing mentality there.
1: Well, you know, look, uh, see a need, fill a need, right? I, I think there is a, a lot of power in a mindset of problem solving, right? And like, oh, here's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one else seems to be fixing it. I feel like I can right? Or at least maybe I can. So let me Uh give it a try. Um, As opposed to, hey, it would be cool to be an entrepreneur in the insure tech space. I think that there's plenty of stuff that's going to get funded. So maybe I'll go try to find some idea to pursue. Like that can work too. Like that's actually a sort of more top-down, sometimes top-down strategy, McKinsey type of, here's where you want to be trying to build new stuff. That can make sense too. Uh, But this was for me just more organic. Uh, you know, I was perfectly happy to be you know, doing VC and actually quite excited to be trying to trying to invest in the next generation of insure techs. Um, it was just really more, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not trying to change my career. I'm trying to just like solve this problem. And then, you know, not a fool. I was obvious that if I helped create the leading industry conference, that'd be a pretty nice hilltop to, to sit on and see what's going on, have interesting conversations with the people. I immediately yeah. became quite... So, Quite surprised, um, and maybe in hindsight, uh, I shouldn't have been. Quite surprised that like industry executives, much more interested in talking to me and, and hearing what I had to say once I was an event planner rather than a VC. It's like as a VC, my job is <laughs> to look around corners, to you know, sort of uh, see all the key trends and 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 all that, and actually like put my money where my mouth is. Um, mm-hmm. I would would have thought that that'd be like okay, that's an interesting role if for someone to talk to if they're in the industry and want to get a sense. No, no, not really all that exciting. Oh, mm-hmm. you're an event planner. All right, I, I want to hear what you have to say about what's going on. <laughs> I'm a little facetious in how I describe that, but like I was just it opened way more doors. Quite honestly, um, yeah. To be uh, you know one of the faces with you know with this guy wearing the hat up on the stage and you know having the I guess you know also. I guess having the um, it, it shows up pretty well to have the the foresight of like oh okay this guy you know had some conviction around the the, the arena and and did something about it to help bring the industry together so
0: yeah know, yeah
1: I'm a uh, that, there. there's an
0: interesting resonance with the podcast actually because I, I think you know I went to ITI twice I mean the European and Amazon in New York and and it's kind of a split between people that wanted to sort of talk to me about recruitment issues and then other people that wanted to talk to me just about the podcast and and uh, it definitely opens more doors that way um but i think there's something about putting on events putting on podcasts is there's a all right the, the, you know events that their podcasts can be profitable when you can get sponsorship events are things that you can make money from but there's almost a neutrality to that isn't there there's a sort of part of the community you're contributing without profiting uh, is almost the sort of mentality of that and i think i think when you put the venture hat on um, it, it's essentially always about profit, ultimately, and and I think the recruitment hat the same, and I so I do I do kind of understand that because that's certainly been my uh, perspective. Um, and I think when you get in at the ground level, there is there is quite a. It's kind of a, there's such a sort of genuine honesty about the sort of the enthusiasm around insuretech, which I think has surprised me. There's a sort of real excitement about it. Um, has that surprised you sort of how much people are invested emotionally in the kind of, uh, the ecosystem of insure tech?
1: So I guess I, I have the advantage of having been doing venture capital for now 14, close to 15 years. Right? Mm. Almost by definition, entrepreneurs are, literally perhaps insanely enthusiastic uh, yeah. Yeah. with what they're doing, regardless of the sector. Right. So, you know, it's fintech, ad tech, HR tech, which I see a lot these days, healthcare mm-hmm. tech, where actually it's very easy to be enthusiastic when you're doing things in as an entrepreneur in healthcare tech, because you're you, you could be literally trying to help cure cancer. Like <laughs> it's not sure. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's not <laughs> a metaphor. Uh, but you know, the same is, is true in insure tech. And, um, you know, I, I think it, insurance is, uh, in my view, such, so close to being a pure good as a product. And I, yeah. I commented on this a couple of years ago, actually at, at ITC, talking on stage, like, yes, I spent lots of time in banking, right? Fine, good training and, and you know, useful products. But like, you know, th- think about people getting onto a, a debt treadmill where they're up, up to their eyes, up to their eyeballs in debt right? Mm-hmm, and I can't mm-hmm. get out. Know, too much of a good thing, right? Becomes a bad thing, right? Mm-hmm. I love my hamburger, but if I eat too many hamburgers every day for too many days in a row, there's a problem. Insurance, you never hear someone say, gee, I, I was up to my eyeballs in insurance. I had so much. I, I'm on such an insurance treadmill. I, I just, you know, can't get enough insurance here. Like sure. insurance is a good thing. And if, if anything, it's people aren't getting enough. Right. Uh, not that they're buying too much. Uh, now, mm-hmm. as an industry, I think there are things that can do better. I think that, the, you know, the conflict moment around claims, right, sometimes goes really well and sometimes does not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think, I think there's lots of, like, user experience, customer experience that can be improved upon. Mm-hmm. But at, at a deep level, this is a good product. Like, it's mm-hmm. a, a fundamental good.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, I think that I, I get some energy out of that. Uh, on top of just the chance to work with you know, great entrepreneurs who are excited to do stuff, mm,
0: I think that's such a, an important thing to acknowledge, and I think that we've seen that in the in the let's let's be honest market correction of some of the kind of investments that have been happening over the last kind of a few years because you know the the this ridiculous notion that insurance is broken. Um it was it was so oversimplified as a kind of proposition. it was it was always going to fail was like no insurance is brilliant. Like like insurance as, as a concept, as a kind of service is brilliant. The execution is what we're looking at now because it, it would be like Amazon's tagline being retail is broken. I was like, well, retail wasn't broken. You could happily go and buy anything you liked, but you just, you bought it in a different way. You had a different customer experience and, and Amazon have just nailed in what that new customer experience is. And, and they've reimagined it in a way that probably we wouldn't have imagined ourselves. So, you know, uh, and I hate using Amazon as an example. I, I, I'd love to pick something more esoteric and interesting, but, you know, there's a reason it's ubiquitous is because they've kind of nailed it in terms of customer experience from retail perspective. So, um, but I think it's such an important point to talk about um you know you touched on it there you're talking about claims i'm slightly obsessed with claims at the moment what kind of macro trends are interesting you in insurtech tech right now is, is is there a kind of particular theme of things that you are interested in
1: yeah you know it's, it's it is sort of my job to be like figuring out what i at least believe is coming mm-hmm. around the corner right? exactly um, what's going to be important uh that doesn't mean I'm always right, um, <laughs> but that's definitely my job to at least, you know, be right sometimes yeah. and, and a little ahead of the curve. So, you know, I, I think uh, uh, th- there's a few things that I'm sort of keen on, my sort of themes for 2022. Uh, one is actually no code, maybe low code platforms. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think there's some real value there, both, both sort of uh, obvious um, speed and cost efficiency, maybe some that are more subtle around mm-hmm. like getting the product manager closer to the metal, so to speak, uh, mm-hmm. and not having the sort of garble that happens when product manager hands off a user spec to a developer who then writes stuff. Um, so I'm actually quite excited about that. Uh, actually led a, an investment a couple months ago in a no-code platform uh, company called CoverGo. So putting my mm-hmm. money where my mouth is on that one. Yeah, sure, um, sure. Uh, I'm uh, also sort of broadly, you know, I think we're on the verge of an tech 2.0 in terms of the, like, customer-facing ones. Um, you know, there's, there's been the, the first wave, you know, very capable entrepreneurs, but really trying to bite off a, a very big chunk. You know, if you've got mm-hmm. Hippo trying to, you know, do all of homeowners insurance in 50 states and Lemonade, I mean, my gosh, trying to do, like, every category of insurance in, you know, half the world. Like, mm-hmm. those, are, those are big chunks to, to chew off. Uh, um, you know, you've seen some in, in auto insurance and so on. I think that there's, there's this next wave of entrepreneur emerging who's actually focused on starting with a specialty, starting with a, a much narrower niche, mm-hmm. and then let's deliver really well against that, right, in terms of go-to market, distribution, product, underwriting, claims process, and then once we've nailed it on a niche, then that gives us sort of permission to uh, either sell other stuff to that same niche or to go into some adjacencies right? uh-huh. and, um, in terms of segment and solve for that. Right? And I think that is actually, um, especially where you know, the sort of capital markets have, have shifted their mindset from grow, grow, grow at any cost to some balance between we want to see growth and we want to see great unit economics and efficiency. Yeah, uh, I think that the specialty, the n- narrow niche approach lends itself, can still grow, uh, but it lends itself to a little bit less competitive dynamics, right? mm. and therefore, potentially better unit economics when you start to solve for it. Mm. Um, is the that... flip side of that is you, you've got to expand other adjacencies in order to yep. build a multi-billion dollar company. So it's that, that is where the trade-off hits. Yeah. And, and, and I was
0: thinking what has what always struck me about venture capital-backed businesses is, is the balance between taking on enough money but not so much investment that actually you're under pressure to grow at all costs and therefore you start in a niche where you have uh, a unique proposition and then to to sort of uh, to sort of get from under the weight of the size of the investment that you've taken on you have to expand into to areas where you potentially don't have a unique proposition, you're competing, you know, the the great example might be something like, um, you know, a lot of people have have gone into the sort of delivery driver um, space or the kind of like Uber type generation uh, in auto. And then they've had to spin out auto into a much broader auto proposition, which where, where they don't necessarily actually have a, 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 any different data points to a traditional insurer, or there's no unit economics to back it up. So so I, I think is it's, it's a real balancing act. And I think where potentially where people have been overzealous has been the speed, the the speed of, oh, we want to get there. Everyone wants to get there, everyone wants to get there quickly, but maybe there's kind of been yes yeah, this is a market correction on on both the the investor class but also the kind of uh, the entrepreneur class there's a, there's been a little bit yeah. of a, we, we want to get there too quickly yeah
1: and, and, and if an entrepreneur takes on too much capital for the stage of the business mm-hmm. they will architect the business to use the capital right Invariably. Yes, and exactly it, and so and, and and they will architect it Right to overconsume capital, or to, to build a, a higher cost structure than the underlying business or, or market actually warrants, and mm-hmm. when they do that, right as soon as the it's not even that the music stops, it's just that the, the tempo slows down for the music that's playing. Mm-hmm. Right, that's where the discover oh, gee, we we architected our business to be where, for a world where capital is abundant and cheap. And that, that's actually a, a sort of artificial and arguably unhealthy way to architect your business, right? You know, moderation, there's also, look, you, you can sometimes bootstrap a business, right? Uh, yeah. Actually in insurance, you kind of see that sometimes more on the broker side of mm-hmm. uh, business models. Uh, you know, so I, I you know, I, there's no absolutes here, uh, no. but there are definitely like, mm, if you're going to, you know, take on that much capital, watch mm-hmm. out because the typical stumbling block is you actually spend it.
0: Yeah, because I've I've got huge empathy for what's going on the moment because we've seen a bit of a restriction, uh, particularly at those earlier stage businesses. And you know, I was talking to someone who was being quite disparaging and had said people had started business with 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 a view to constantly being raising raising rounds and and growing and. You know and I, and I had to counter that by saying but that's the environment we were in we were in an environment where that was a perfectly legitimate way to grow a business but the, the problem with that is that when that, ca- that that flow of capital slows slows even slightly you're in a position where that business model or that all that kind of a way of growing is not the most prudent one at the time you know if you were going out and pitching a startup now that you as we were just saying, you probably have a slightly different proposition uh, at this point in time. Um, I wanted to sort of, uh, uh, similarly to that, you've been in in the tech market for, for for since inception. As, as we sort of, there, there's an argument about it. it's been going on for about thirty odd years. But but you know, <laughs> let's let the modern the modern version of insurtech and what it is, um, the flavour of entrepreneur. I've noticed that the profile has changed. I, I, I wonder if you would agree with that and, and, and how
1: you think that that has changed. Well, I think that the, you know, InsureTech 0.0, right, or 0.1, which kind of mostly predates me, I would say. You, you had mm-hmm. insurance people, right, trying to sort of move the industry mm-hmm. forward through technology. And, you know, bits and pieces of success there, but, you know, back to the earlier part of our conversation, maybe there wasn't as much pent up sort of demand and value from the root root technologies and so on. InsureTech, Mm -hmm. you know, 1.0, six, seven years ago, I think really saw the influx of more of your, you know, classic Stanford engineer, right, type the software led entrepreneur who Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. didn't have any insurance experience to speak of at all, right? But they mm-hmm. sort of took that top down op- recognition of, gee, a bunch of user experience is lousy. There's some lots of market cap here. Um, they ha- haven't used the technologies the same to the same, anywhere near the same degree that other industries like banking have. There's an opportunity. Let me go figure this out. And yeah. I know software and how to sort of leverage software to, to make businesses more effective, more efficient. And you saw that type of entrepreneur really come in here, which by the way, is is the type of entrepreneur that VCs particularly like to support, right? Yes. VCs, if given a choice, the typical VC between uh, investing someone who's great at software and and steeped in the culture of entrepreneurism uh, uh, versus one who is, you know, deep in industry expertise and deep in the culture of the industry, but doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily have the software piece, the the, the VC community is almost always going to be in favor of that first one Mm. i think with this insure tech 2.0 wave again you know marked by things like more niche uh, opportunities being pursued a little bit more balance around um, growth versus unit economics Uh i actually think that you're seeing there um uh, a little bit more of the pendulum swinging back so these are these are often people who if they're not deep in insurance they at least have some exposure to insurance as well as exposure to technology and that's that's part of what gives them the insight oh here's a niche that needs fixing and i know what it needs because i've got some insurance mm-hmm. background mm-hmm. and i know how to do that because i got some technology background and boom they go after that so i think it's yeah. that we're now in that that third wave the insure 2.0 of um uh, the entrepreneurs being a little bit more balanced um mm-hmm. and from a you know. Building a business slightly more pragmatic, a little less sort of pie in the sky. We can take on everything, um, at least in, initially, and a little bit more like, okay, how am I going to build a, a business that's not beholden to, to raising two hundred million dollars of capital in its first two years?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And, and we're and we're seeing more because um, because the problem with Shortech as well is that you know we're both having this conversation and, and lumping it all together, but but we've got. One end of the spectrum, we've got full-stack digital insurers uh, through digital MGAs, through to you know quite broad platform offerings, all the way to really discrete, you know specific uh, technology solutions, um, and they all fit within that bucket. Um, but 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 I think the sort of broader, bigger versions of all of these are the ones that seem. More at threat at the 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 present time, and and what I'm seeing more of is these discrete or specific or niche offerings, and and those are the ones that I'm personally quite excited about, and 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 although I'm not an investor, that we we work with earlier stage businesses, so I so I'm I kind of we're investing our business time in those businesses, and 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 so it's always kind of about trying to spot the trends, and that that's just you know that is the trend of what we're seeing, and and I think those businesses that are coming out now absolutely you know echo what you've seen it was the sort of it was the engineering-led product-led individuals and now we're seeing founder teams that are much more working with the industry you know for example they're not going for a different distribution model they're working through broker distribution models because people have seen well actually it's a really cost-effective way of getting to market um, unless they're going embedded and then you know that's a that's a whole (laughs) <laughs> there's, a, there's an hour on that we could do. Um, so yeah, definitely the profile's changed. And I think that's interesting. Um, what's um, um, What do you zero in on when you're making an investment decision? I know there's so much there. It's got to fit thesis. It's, it's you know, there's you know, the CAC or various other elements. But what, what really is the thing that you zero in on personally when you're making an investment decision?
1: Well, look, I'll start with you know, the obvious one that every, every VC says, and it's true, right? The people, the management team, right? The founders, um, you know, I mm-hmm. I'd always rather invest in an in A quality founder with a, a B initial idea than a B founder uh, chasing down an, an A uh, level initial idea. I, I will also say, I think mm-hmm. we need to be really careful about what makes uh, someone, an A versus a B as a founder. Um, uh, I think mm-hmm. we need to be careful not to be knee-jerk about it. I think we need to be careful that it's, it doesn't have to be a Stanford engineer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I live 2,500 miles from Stanford, right? So I'm, I'm in like the real world here, which, becomes, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that the, uh, so I, I think just being mindful of that and not being cookie cutter about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to believe this person is great, uh, but that doesn't mean you have to believe that they look like every other Stanford engineer right, in order to, to be great. I mm. think that the, um, the, uh, the opportunity right, has to be something where, number one, it's got to be large enough. right? People always talk about TAM, total addressable market. That's true. It's got to be large enough where you can see a way. Like I'll get the occasional pitch deck where they show, oh, and in five years we have $25 million of revenue. right? And actually pretty capital efficient mm-hmm. getting from here to there. And it's it's great. It's a lovely business, but I will tell them in a very direct way that is absolutely not a venture backable business right? because venture is driven by mm. the power law, right? I don't care. I, mean, I care, but I don't really care. My results are not driven by if I lose money on five out of 10 companies that I invest in. I'd rather get make money on them, sure, but my results are really not driven by. Me. My results are driven by the top one or two or if I'm really good three investments out of 10 and how Mm -hmm. big are those right Mm -hmm. if if my best ones are like three four x well then I'm not a very good VC I'm not having a very good very good fund right Uh, yeah you need to have so it's really about is there a a plausible path here where this gets you know a 20x 30x 40x right um if so sort of if the entrepreneur is as good as we think they are, if the market is actually as ripe as we think, and if a couple of things go their way, like that's, that's what you're, you're betting on, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then uh, I think that you, you've got to also know why you're a fit for that particular startup, right? I, I, I really, there are some generalist VCs and, you know, they have their value prop around why sort of they should exist. I think a VC has to always ask, why do we deserve to exist? Like, what do we bring to the table that the other couple thousand VCs wandering around don't? Um, you got to be distinctive about that, and and you've got to have sort of, you've got to be disciplined around only investing in those companies, those startups, that really do line up with what you're good at as an investor, what you know, where you'll be able to actually help the startup. Uh, um, And there's lots of different ways to help a startup. But you got to be very crisp and clear about to yourself and to them what that's about. So, what do mm-hmm. I, part of what we look for is it's actually a fit with where we can help. You know, for Sempervirens now, that's very much about understanding the employer decision making process. It's about um, connecting them into employer channels or, you know, in healthcare tech, which is sort of overlaps a lot with employers in the US, also mm-hmm. understanding the, the payers and things like that. But like, you got to have clarity about what you're bringing to the table and why it fits.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I think the specialization of VCs of, of is, is, is
0: so clearly so important. I, I'm sort of, you know, I'm always reflecting things back on your own industry because it's the industry you understand, right? It's the same for, you know, sometimes we compete with fintech businesses and I go... Yeah, but InsurTech is 10% of fintech. So if you're only spending 10% of your time in and you, you can't understand the nuances and you can't access the talent, and I would imagine it's the same. It's sort of reflecting that back and going, we can help you because we're zeroing in on this piece. We understand it culturally. We can connect you. Um, what's changed about... Oh, actually, no, before I jump to that, I, I, I really want to come back to the thing you said because it is about the founders, but I thought it was really important what you said about being careful that we don't just invest in Stanford MBAs, etc., because conversation we had we've just did a group webinar which is about diversity equity and inclusion and, and we had some great uh, venture capital guys on there and talking about the part to play that venture has which is if we're investing in the cookie cutter version then we're not doing a lot about de and i and and I was wondering what you know have you taken steps to address that is that something that you're conscious of uh, you know how do you kind of try and not fall into that trap of basically investing in the, you know, white middle-class Stanford MBA person, you know, like that's, that's, that's realistically what, what happens. Um, says the white middle middle-class middle-aged guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Look, I, I think it is a real issue. Um, and, and there's, there's different aspects of trying to solve for it. So mm-hmm. on the conference side, right. Um, okay. I'll, start with that. Right. Uh, we we grappled with that, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There there were plenty of folks who would look like you and me, right? Um, Mm -hmm. With about the same amount of hair on our heads, um, (laughs) uh, who were at about the same age range and so on, Mm -hmm. uh, who would want to be on stage and uh, don't want to discriminate against them, but also want to like have balance here. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the way I describe it in that context is we always wanted to make sure that the people who are on stage were looking like the future of what insurance is going to be, not where it's been, right? And so, you know, thinking about where does does that look like? What does it mean to be? Uh, You know, my my corollary of that is good news, you can actually now be in the insurance industry and not have to play golf. Like, okay, (laughs) that's great actually some people don't like to play golf and i mean they'll swallow if they have to but like okay that and that actually is a really <laughs> subtle form of diversity right Yeah. because uh, tying yeah. the your advancement in a industry to sort of an affiliation with a particular sport like it's it sounds crazy when i say that but i think there's a there's a kernel of truth to that mm. right mm. um and especially if that's a sport that is tied to Uh, country clubs and things like that, like, okay, maybe there actually is, right? Um, And it sort of starts to be as bad as having, you know, the business deal done in the men's room. Like, it's just, it it, it creates a skew that Mm -hmm. we don't need. That's not actually Mm -hmm. a productive skewing in in how we Mm -hmm. operate. Mm -hmm. Uh, On the venture side, you know, I think it it is uh, challenging. Um, You know, in a sense, I actually, I I, I alluded to, I I actually live in the real world, unlike uh, many other VCs. So I live in Richmond, Virginia, um, very middle of the road, you know, it's probably like the 50th largest city in the rich in the U S. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that actually at a personal level gives me a little bit more perspective, um, yeah. uh, including a, on demographic issues, right? Richmond has very, very different demographics than San Francisco. Uh, yeah. dramatically. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, a, and like, I, I'm not going to assert that there's a, an easy answer or that I've got a, a proper solution for it. I think that uh, you know you're in your question you talk, talked about like how, how do you make a conscious choice around that I, I think that actually is the starting point is being conscious about it mm-hmm. right? and I'm not going to change my criteria of the most important thing is the capability of the founder that's yeah. not negotiable yeah but let's make sure, that when I'm assessing the capability of a founder, I'm not doing so in some sort of knee-jerk or cookie-cutter way, mm-hmm. or that I'm having some sort of visceral visceral reaction to you know matterisms. Mm-hmm. Matterisms are actually have cultural components to them. Mm-hmm. Some demographics, some not. Mm-hmm. And let's make sure that if I'm being if I'm reacting in some visceral way uh, to particular mannerisms, I'm asking like, oh well, is that, actually, is that actually a thing on me? Is that something mm. I got to figure out?
0: Mm. Well, oh, no, that,
1: doesn't, that doesn't make them uh, a less capable entrepreneur, right? That's mm. just my, my gut sort of overreacting to something. Okay, well, mm. let's, let's be mindful of that uh, and make sure that we're not doing something, you know, counterproductive for me and for them. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I, I
0: mean, one of the things that came out of the conversation the other day was, was as much as, you know, talking about it in itself was useful you know the the consciousness of it um because it it happens you know i think investing has so many parallels with hiring people um you know you're putting your time and money into into people you're making those decisions based on people and you know familiarity has a huge impact on that you know that person is like me, that's great. Um, and, and that's that's from a hiring perspective, um, and just being kind of conscious of it. But I think the mannerisms thing is very important. What you said, the, the golf thing, it's usually important and really made me laugh, you know. I'm you know, from a very working fast family. I'd never seen a golf club till I was about 25. And then everyone played golf. I still play golf to this day because if I want to spend any time with my friends who all play golf, if I don't play golf, I won't see them. But twice a year we go on holiday and I torture myself around a golf club. That's a bit different, different, but at work, I found it very difficult because I didn't want to play golf. Wasn't interested in it. And, and, and so much, so many deals were done. And I know on the venture side, you know, some of the complaints we've received when talking to kind of, uh, you know, women, women, particularly in the industry are, I don't want to go drinking with a, bunch of men i don't know in the evening to 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 get venture so little things like changing the time the place the location for example not zeroing in on every you know the equivalent would be in the uk that, that there's always a complaint that all the money comes out of london you know and and, and New York in the US or, or San Francisco in the US, and, and, and saying, well, actually, there's there's VC spread around. I, I think these little things are are important, um, and, that, and they and they spread the kind of risk of us, um, you know, diving in. But I think just talking about it and being aware and, and what we can do is is so important. Um, you and I had I, a conversation. Sorry, I no, do,
1: please. I actually, do, I'm sorry. The, the, I actually do like that the insurance industry is much more geographically dispersed whether mm-hmm. in the U S or globally than many other industries. I, I think about banking, right? Um, sure. you know, they, wall street is a metaphor in the same way that Silicon Valley is a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. But actually like banking is very concentrated in New York in particular, right? Sure. Insurance is, and, and you know, globally banking is concentrated in probably five cities, uh, mm-hmm. around, the world. uh, insurance, I think is actually much more dispersed. And I actually think you see that in the profile of a lot of the entrepreneurs, Right? Especially mm. those who come with some insurance background, you actually mm-hmm. see them coming out of the U.S. Midwest, right? much higher proportion than you might see in other kinds of other industries that are venture backed. So I, I really mm. like that, too.
0: Yeah. And that's what I think is one of the benefits that the, the U.S. has got this kind of, uh, you know, the scale and size of it. One of the benefits there is spreading that across, because one of the complaints I often hear in the U.K. is that we've seen this reduction in sort of regional insurance market in terms of offices, you know, it's simply just physical spaces, because so many good insurance professionals came from, you know, these regional offices where they would train in one of the big, um, when the large carriers, um, and then they would earn their stripes there. That was my story. I, I started in a regional office of an insurance carrier, and then I came to London. Um, the the diminishes that has actually diminished the level of talent and and the accessibility of the insurance industry. Um, And, and that's, that's, that's to its to its detriment so yeah I do think uh, you know, the US has that m- huge advantage and, and and one of the things about uh, insurance and insure tech is that we shouldn't be so geographically focused especially not now but um, uh, don't want to get into politics but our, our government's not helping to support that because we've got a terrible transport network uh, it's a very sore day for that we've got strikes coming up and we've got uh, record oil prices which is not helping so Moving swiftly on, um, so uh, you and I had a great conversation about this, and I thought I thought you had some great, interesting um, things to say about this. We sort of said, we 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 had a conversation before about legacy culture versus legacy technology, and 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 like which one is actually standing in the
1: way of change. Um, and I suppose it could be both. I'm sure, but, um, yeah. but well, I mean, look, it, but both are obstacles, but they they are not, in my mind, the same magnitude of obstacle. Actually, right? It, mm-hmm. It's easier to point to the legacy technology, right? The systems from the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s, yeah. my, um, And how you know? gee, In order to create apis accessing them it's a it's a massive endeavor or oh if you want to launch something with no code right you know what does that mean in terms of the existing technology stack that you've got um yes those are real and legitimate questions to be addressed and tackled but they are fundamentally addressable and tackleable Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. is the legacy culture which stands in the way far more often, I believe. Right? Mm. It is, well, that's the way we've done it. So, and it's, if it ain't broke, we don't need to fix it. We don't need to modernize. Uh, yeah, the customer experience, we, we're not terribly proud of the customer experience, but it's okay. We're still getting the customers that we want from the brokers. And, you know, if, uh, you know, and, and the, do we really need that satellite data to, let us underwrite better i mean it's been fine and gee actually my actuarial science training doesn't doesn't teach me how to use satellite data so much um i mean the legacy culture is the much bigger obstacle Mm. because if you choose to solve for legacy technology right there's a bunch of rational choices you can make um and, and 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 by the way, like part of it is playing defense, and part of it is actually playing offense. And again, you can make choices around that. And I think the the challenge with legacy culture is that you don't even necessarily get to the point of having the rational assessment of where there's opportunity to play offense, to play defense, to create efficiencies, to get more speed, whatever. Um, it's it's very easy, particularly in larger, established, successful businesses, to be able to just stick with, well, you know, that's not something we've done before. We don't, we don't have a burning need, a burning problem to, to fix it. Let's just keep going you know for a few more years. Mm. And you know I, we had um, the CEO of Chubb as keynote speaker at ITC last year. And uh, I'm going to paraphrase, but I really love something that he said uh, about Chubb. And I, I actually think that it's true in addition to being what he said. So mm. he, he said that in years past, Chubb had an underwriting culture that served it very well. But today, he said, it has an underwriting and engineering culture. And I love that, right? Because mm. first of all, clearly he's been mindful about what culture right does he want, right? Mm-hmm. And because and, every choice there has trade-offs and he said, look, mm-hmm. I need engineering, to be on equal footing with underwriting, right? and that's a sure. cultural change. That's not a you know tech stack change. Yeah, um, and yep. I've I've actually seen evidence that it's true. Like, mm. um, and oh by the way, like not the least of which is he called it engineering and not IT. right? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I that's. To make sure that if <laughs> yeah. you call it IT, you've already lost. You've already <laughs> missed the point. You can, call, you, can, you can debate, is it engineering, is it developers, is it coders? That's fine. If it's IT, no, IT, are the, they're the folks who get my computer set up or have my make sure my phone works, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I, I'm sure I'm going to annoy a lot of people with what I just said there. Um, yeah. But like, there is a mindset difference um, mm-hmm. that is sort of evidenced by the language that someone chooses to describe that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I think that the part of the advantage that the startups have is they come into it, right. True. They don't have legacy technology to work through and to refactor and so on, but more important, they don't have legacy culture, right. To try to drive a two-year change management program around how we're going to do things. They go in actually with, let's try to, you know, we want to be the agent of change in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and mm-hmm. you know, you can get yourself into trouble if you disrespect conventional wisdom, uh, uh, which is why a lot of the, the better insurer acts do bring in people from the industry, mm-hmm. but you have a cultural piece that needs to be around, okay, let's explore what's possible. Let's see what the benefits of this new technology might be. Oh, we can't find one. Fine. We don't need to, we don't have to use it just for, for technology's sake. Oh, that satellite data feed can actually help us you know underwrite faster or cheaper or smarter okay let's look into that, actually doing that great mm. the culture piece right is such mm. a and, and and as Chubb demonstrates I think you can you can actually embrace a culture of change and a culture of tech driven change right mm-hmm. whether you're you know, a massive company or a startup uh, but it does require like you got to be choiceful about it.
0: Mm. It, it, it also requires a management of timeframes. I think this, the easier thing about technology as well is to say, right, we're going to evolve and uh, we're going we're gonna to move over to a new technology stack. It's going to take two years. This is the plan. This is how we're going to do it. Oh, we both know it's going to take four years and take, it cost 10 times as much, but, but there is a timeline and they're working towards something. But we very rarely see that on a culture perspective because we go, oh, we're going to change culture. Culture requires you to probably shed a few people, hire new people, build new departments, you're absolutely right. Technology, we talk about that all the time. Technology teams within large carriers are generally set up to maintain this old technology stack. That is not the same as an innovative engineering team that is looking for the future. And and I think if we see the growth of innovation teams within side carriers, it used to be, oh, let's hire some really smart person, stick them in a room. They had no budget, no power. We're already seeing the evolution of those teams now have top-down input they have budgets and that's that's changing um i'm really conscious of the time so i i i want to i want to sort of bring to a, a last question as a bit more of a fun question uh i well i hope um first itc first itc uh, for me this year in vegas uh i'm sure there'll be many people because it's going to be bigger than it's ever done um what should one prepare for uh, with itc
1: <laughs> what are uh, your my, my, my advice uh, yeah a couple of yeah. things, make sure you get lots of rest in advance because you are going to be working hard, right? Yeah. This is not a boondoggle. You're going to be exhausted at the end. So make sure you, you catch up on sleep in advance. Uh, i also say, like, get yourself into the extrovert mindset, like yeah. be prepared to, you know, walk. There's a difference walking around looking grumpy and walking around with a smile on your face. Like sure. people will come up to you if you look inviting, right? If you go out of your way, uh, people will come up. To you, you go look for someone else who's smiling and just sort of standing at the coffee and go introduce yourself. Sure. ITC, what's special about ITC is people's mindset is very different from the other three hundred sixty-two days of the, the year in their work life. Right? Mm-hmm. At ITC, people are open to new possibilities, n- new introductions. They're they're genuinely curious about oh, what do you do? Right? Oh, what do you do? Oh, how did that work for you? They're open to those conversations. So just go in with that mindset.
0: Yeah, perfect. Brilliant. Uh, just good, good, good rules for life, I would say. Uh, walk around with a smile on your face is always going a bit more engaging. But um, Gary, I've loved this. Uh, I loved our prior conversation. I'm really glad we got to do this. Uh, I think you bring a really kind of like fresh, just, just different take on on what, what investing is and, 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 and what the community of insurance is. So uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and I really appreciate you being a, a, a guest on the podcast. Well, thanks. It's been a terrific hour with you. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time.